All right, back on the Young Turks. A couple of great guests coming up for you guys, and then the post game where uh, I, you know, I mentioned to you guys that we're going to do the story about uh, burnout if it's real or not. I want to do it with John so I can make fun of him, uh, but we'll do it in the post game with Ida and Brooke and be respectful, which is annoying. Uh, but <laughs> the members get that tyt.com/trial, and I'll get you a one week uh, free of the Young Turks, and you can see if you like it. Uh, and that'll be the last half hour. But this half hour, we got two great guests for you guys, so let's get started on that. Joining me now is Gregory Marquette. He is the author of The Bomb Heard Around the World. So obviously we're gonna talk about what that is. Uh, Gregory's also uh, been all over television, CTV, CBC, those are Canada, BBC, you know that's uh, the UK. He's won like 17 awards, Clio's, Juno Awards, and, and, and the list goes on. Uh, Gregory, welcome to the Young Turks. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. All right, uh, good to have you. So. I'm curious why you wrote a book after all the career in television, but we're gonna get to that in a sec. Mm-hmm. Um, first, what is the bomb heard around the world? Well, it's a it's an interesting approach to it. As I was doing a screenplay in Florida about a movie about a movie we're doing about the the highwaymen. The highwaymen are a series of black artists who, in the 1950s, were taught by a mentor there who was remarkable named A.E. Backus. And while I was doing the research, every time I write a screenplay, I've written quite a few films, I discovered that, that getting the context of a story is crucial. You can't just tell the story, it's not in a capsule, it's not in a bubble, it's impacted by so many things. So when I was researching this, I found there was this horrific assassination in 1951 in Florida. And it was at the same time that the highwayman story, we called it the unknowns, was going on, and I thought, well, what is this? And I always find when I do research, I've done many historical pieces. And so as I looked into it, I realized that there was a horrendous story going on. But not only that, and that's where I really got tweaked, was there were 12 bombings in the course of nine months in Florida at the same time. So I'm doing this research here about these artists, and all of a sudden I see there's bombings everywhere, and FBI, and there's assassinations, and I'm thinking, what is this? So I talked to many Florida residents. I talked to people there in law enforcement. They knew nothing. They seemed to know nothing. And I said, how could they not know anything? Well, it is Florida, to be fair. <laughs> okay. So I'm, that, I'm, yeah. I'm a little heartened to know that Florida's always been nuts. Um, okay, uh, but uh, no, so it is a serious issue. But before I go back to the bombings, uh, I didn't know about the highwaymen either. First of all, you said highwaymen. Since I don't know anything about them, I'm like, one, that's a totally badass name. That's a great name. Yes. Uh, and then yes. you told me they're a group of black artists back in the 1950s, and they're yes. called the Highwaymen. I'm like, how could they be any cooler than they already are? <laughs> okay. So, what, what was their music? What, what did they play? Well, well, well they were, no, they were artists. It, it's it, you know, the word artist changes now in uh, terms of time. They were real artists, painters. Oh wow! Yes, they were painters, but but it was so shocking. Again, that's why I took that story on. A producer there in Florida named Walter Shaw. Uh, called me one day and he said, you know, there's these these guys and they were overlooked, but they were brilliant and they did hundreds of thousands of paintings. I said, oh, come on, that's crazy. What do they travel around, do paintings in different towns? They, it, not not far off, They because they were black, they couldn't take their paintings into a, an art gallery. So one day, Freddie Hare, who was the head of the uh, of the artist movement, went into an art gallery with a bunch of paintings and they called the police and they were his. He painted them, <laughs> wow. so so he went by the side of the road. And he put the paintings up against his car, and he sold them by the side of the road. And suddenly, there were hundreds of people becoming interested because the art was astonishing. It was really beautiful work, exceptional. Not just because it was pretty; it was 
a true artistry. And so he decided to train many of his friends to paint. So you do the sky, and I'll teach you to do, you do the, the lake, and you do this. And he taught everybody, and he created this kind of factory process of doing it in his backyard with his friends. And all of a sudden, it became a new movement, an art movement in Florida. And they were there operating for, they still are there today, but uh, you know they were passed on to many people. Anyway, so that's it, how we got started. Yeah, it's, it's a little depressing that uh, the more things change, the more they stay oh, the well, same. I mean, you know, yes. just over the last two days with the story of a, Today, a couple that had a gun pulled on them because oh. they were went to a, at a lake. picnic, picnic, at right. picnic, yeah, right? Literally that. a picnic. And then yesterday, a guy was picking up garbage in front of his own apartment building. I mean, who would go and pick garbage in front of somebody else's apartment building, etc. And then there, you know, and I can go on and on know, and on. And so, and and so back then, yes. the highwaymen have to go on the road because when they go to their They'd own art galleries, yes. there, yeah, arrested. So okay, so then you stumble upon these series of killings in Florida. Yes, what were they about? Well. I didn't know at first, on Christmas Day in 1951, in the evening, Harry and Harriet Moore get home with their, one of their children, uh, Annie, and, um, and they have dinner. They had dinner at their mother, mother's house and went back and, uh, and they went to bed. And kablam, a bomb was set underneath the floor joists of their bedroom and ripped the home, the home apart and killed them both. And damn it, and destroyed the house and they were assassinated. And the KKK had... Uh, Finally, had enough of this this fellow, and uh, it turns out he was the executive secretary for the NAACP. He also ran something called the Progressive Voters League, which was a organization he created in Florida to register black voters who were in those days threatened, intimidated, and in some t- cases killed or beaten for trying to vote. And he was the one that he went from churches to uh, uh, homes. And he went to community centers and traveled all throughout Florida, educating blacks that if you vote, that's the only power, that's the best power you're going to have. Yelling and screaming and picketing is one thing, but to take a vote and really do some some good was the way to go. And of course, the KKK said, "Wait a second here, uh, no, 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 we don't we don't want to see this happen." And so they were threatening him, and he knew he was going to be killed. Uh, I have to say that now because in newspapers and interviews and all the research that I did, even his own family said at some point it's going to be over because he is a target with a target on his back because of what he was doing. So, you know, I talk about this in the context of the civil rights movement. This is a little bit earlier than that, even. Uh, well, that's the point. Yeah. No, 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 but he was 12 years before Medgar Evers' assassination, 14 years before Malcolm X, 17 years before, uh, before Martin Luther King. He was, they were the first real civil rights activists to be assassinated on a political level. Many blacks were lynched and killed, but they were focused on registering voters and being politically active, and they were assassinated for that. And so they're considered to be the first, but nobody knows about them. Yeah, no, nobody no, no, knows. I love that you did this project. Uh, it's so, important. yeah, there's a couple of images that always stay with me, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. And, and it's usually with the Klan at night. So, with the Freedom Riders, when they in the 1960s, they would take buses. Uh, to different parts of the South, and it was mixed uh, white and black civil rights workers, yes. and and oftentimes when they were getting out in the middle of nowhere in the in Mississippi, Alabama, etc., the Klan would be waiting for them at the bus stop, and I think, what kind of courage that takes to be able to do that, uh, and and it seems unprecedented, unbelievable. So whatever we ask people to do today is nothing by comparison. The courage it took was staggering. And, uh, and when I, say, I want to say something that's important. When I wanted to do this, how do you, the research involved 
and the people involved and the work involved was massive. So uh, a man who was a, a, a church leader in Florida, Bishop Jimmy Williams at the Lighthouse Worship Center, we went to him and said, look, we got to tell this story. We have to tell this story. And so he kindly stepped up and helped us to trigger this on a financial level just to get it going because so much work involved in doing this. And so he was terrific to do it. And when we finally got it, we, uh, Congressman Charlie Chris got involved in 2004 when he was Attorney General. And he's, Evangeline, the daughter, came and said, you know, my parents were assassinated. And he, he knew nothing about it. I interviewed him and he said, I, I didn't know about it. You'd heard kind of little sidebar things and little you know, uh, bylines and comments, but nobody knew about it. So then he learned, and then he did the research and reopened the case. Is my point. So Gregory, wait, I thought that he that you recognized that Charlie Chris reopened the case in the midst of your research. Was it your research that actually pointed out to him that it had happened? In the oh first no, 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 I didn't do that. But he told me that. And I'm sorry, in the interview, he told me that. I asked him. I said, "How did you learn about it?" Because yeah. you're asking me. How yeah. did, well, I learned from what I was doing. But I said, "How did you learn about it in 2004?" And he said, "The, the daughter came in and told me about it." And then he opened the case. So I saw different clips about that while I was doing the movie. Oh, I see. And and, and so what, that, and, yeah, and what yeah. happened in that case that Charlie Chris reopened? He's now a U.S. congressman, by the way. Switched over from Republican to Democrat. Yes, indeed. So, and he was uh, under Jeb Bush at that point. He was Attorney General for Jeb Bush, who was governor at that point. And he uh, he was so astounded, but as I was similarly, that he said, "You know, we have to do something about it." So he reopened the case. And what he did, and I asked him this. I, I've got to tell you, he said. I didn't know if I would solve anything or find anything new, but you just had to do it, even if you didn't. There are many cold cases that have been reopened across the country. And even if you don't solve it, the act and the energy and the morality of opening it and the ethics of going after this to try and prove something or figure it out is just as important as solving it in, in many respects. It's good mm -hmm. if you can, but he did. He connected a lot of dots and opened a lot of windows that had not been opened before. And um, it wasn't that they solved the case, but they reaffirmed and re confirmed who did it and how and why. So mm -hmm. it was very crucial. Were they still alive or no? They're, they're well, ironically, I, I sh the one week after the, the, the killings of Heron Harriet Moore in 1951, one of the guys committed suicide. Oh, uh, you know, I don't know if this is, makes me a bad person, but I'm glad he did. Well, yes, and then, and then uh, another one died, committed suicide about two years later, I think two or three years later, and one died of cancer, and the last one came forward and confessed in the 70s i believe long before charlie wow. chris involvement and he died they were going to they were going to indict him because uh -huh. he had he really spilled so much they said well yeah he loves and he, he named names and did all of that so it gave a sense of context and reaffirmed a lot of the things that they suspected but the irony is the fbi did not solve a single thing mm -hmm. they did nothing mean, but jagger hoover yeah of course who was a right wing Zealot and racist. Yeah, absolutely. And, and instead of solving uh, the lynchings and, and assassinations of black people, yeah. J. Edgar Hoover was busy tracking civil rights leaders and, and framing them. And uh, Martin Luther King, notwithstanding. There yeah, you go. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, do you think that those ter uh, terrorist attacks, and, and that's what the KKK are the original uh, domestic terrorists? Uh, absolutely. No ends of yeah. sort butts. Anyone yeah. who denies that. Oh, well. I mean, that's a weird thing to deny and, and kind of betrays themselves. Uh, because what, when you bomb people and you shoot people mm -hmm. and you do it to terrorize them, 
That is the literal definition of terrorism. I would say so. Yeah. Yes. So one last thing, did those bombings in Florida, because you, you talk about 12 of them that had yeah. happened, right? 12 like killings. 12 to 18 bombings actually, but, but hold on, they were bombing blacks, Jews, Catholics, churches, uh, and synagogues. Yeah, so and it here we are again. Here we are again, right? So, so yeah. when I took this on to finish what you had asked me earlier, I felt like there's, there are echoes of yesteryear and here they are today. And how do we devolve back into Jim Crow? And that seems to be where we've gone. And it's it's, yeah, it's it's terrible. I, I gotta ask one last quick question please, please. here. So then there's the bombings of the churches that happened across the South, and you know the young girls uh, that were killed in the in the yeah. church bombings, etc. That was later, but yes, that was later in the 1960s yeah. and, and stuff. So was it? Do you think it was inspired by what happened in Florida? Did they? I mean, was it a? Was bombing a, a, a modus operandi because it's amazing because they, they kind of cleanse it in history. They talk about the KKK, but they don't talk about it in terms of bombings. I, and I, and maybe it's because it it's too close. It hits too close to home because we associate bombings with terrorists. But it's different. And the content. Yes, it's a very good question. I asked the same question. I talked to the FDLE and the FBI reports and all of that. And bombings were. What were the people who were KKK members doing for a living? Many of them, they were blowing up stumps in their farms, they were using for construction. So it wasn't that they were bombs in the way that we look at European or Middle Eastern bombings, which were a, a certain mentality behind it. It just was easy for them to do, it was cheap. And by the way, you were supposed to register dynamite, but they never kept track of it. Mm. So you could, it was an easy way to kill someone without having to be caught. And, oh. it was, and it was it was easy for them to get because they had boxes of it in their in their cupboards, you know. And not just take care, but many people who had farms all had dynamite. It was kind of the the norm. So hmm. that that was the thing. But oh, I didn't know that. So, That's so, yeah, so it wasn't they weren't inspired by it, but it was just a, a clean kill, if I can be blunt. That's what and an easier one for them to do than using a gun and getting caught. And in shades of today, again, yes. unregu unregulated weapons making uh, killing people easier. And, and that leads to, unfortunately, the massacres that happened. All right, the book is called The Bomb Heard Around the World. And as you can tell, it is an absolutely fascinating story. Gregory Marquette, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate great it. Great pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thank you. All right, we have one more great guest for you guys, and it's Brian Solis. And he's going to talk to us about whether we are too distracted by social media and it's destroying our happiness. So it's a fascinating conversation as well. We'll do that when we return. All right, back on the Young Turks. Uh, now joining me in the studio, Brian Solis. Uh, he is an expert on social media. In fact, in 2018, he gave the uh, keynote in South by uh, why you're addicted to social media. Uh, now he's got a new book out called Life Scale, How to Live a More Creative, Productive, and Happy Life. Well, that sounds pretty good, Brian. Okay, all right, <laughs> how are we gonna do that? <laughs> hey, listen, so uh, after that keynote at South by, Everybody came up and that was the number one question that they had. So now that we've seen the dark sides of not just social media, but gaming and, and smartphones, what do we do about it? You know, mm -hmm. we're with you, but now what do we do about it? And so I thought, well, I, I better get an answer to that. And so I, I went dark and that became, uh, that became this, uh, which mm -hmm. was an exploration of how to, how to balance 
technology without getting rid of it because I wasn't about to get rid of social media or my smartphone. I just needed to be more mindful and strategic and present in how I was gonna use it. And then that just came down to a bigger human conversation, Conversation, which is why is this, why is this stuff distracting me? Mm-hmm. And what's it holding me back from? And it made me have conversations and just kind of soul searches to, to kind of get answers that I wasn't even thinking about because I was too distracted living in, in the digital moment, liking, seeking likes, following, getting followers, uh, and just keeping up with everything online. And it was holding me back from the greater vision that I was never actually applying time and energy toward. No, I totally agree. That's why you should follow me on Twitter after you download the TYT app. Um, <laughs> okay, no, seriously, look, uh, you're right that we, like, it's unrealistic to say, oh, we're not gonna use uh, smartphones anymore, and we're not gonna, we're gonna disengage from, from social media or technology overall. Everything's technology, there's no way to disengage. Okay, so, and I, there's one part in here that I'm a little skeptical about, okay, uh-huh. and I wanna ask you about it, because it says that uh, it takes an average of about 25, well, 23 minutes and 15 seconds to return to your original task after an interruption. So if you went on your phone and you texted something or you tweeted something, 23 minutes, 15. Really, that seems like an incredibly long period of time. So if you're, let's say, let's say you're writing a chapter for a book or mm-hmm. let's say you're writing a script for your next screenplay or your show, that takes flow, that takes deep concentration or deep work, right? And so when you're in that state, it's like it's like inception. You know, your level your levels down into that work. When you reach for your phone and check a text or just mindlessly scroll like a lot of us do, you're pulling yourself out of that, right? And so that's a chemical thing that you have to try to get back into that area. And it takes 23 minutes if you're dedicated to get back into that zone. Wow. Okay. I. Um, I think I'm too busy to like. I ain't know. I ain't nobody got 23 minutes to get back into the zone. I got about at most 23 seconds to get back into right. the zone. Uh, but okay, so so how do you strike that middle ground? Yeah, so I think a lot of this was trying to figure out. That's unrealistic. I don't have 23 minutes either, and I'm not giving up my phone or anything. So what am I gonna do about it? And then more importantly, how am I gonna help other people figure it out as well? So naturally, I did what most would do, which was Google solution. <laughs> and uh, how's that for irony? <laughs> yeah, okay. Absolutely. And you know what came back was reasonable, right? Uh, turn off notifications, delete some apps you don't really need unless you need them, schedule time for certain things, uh, go to digital detox, go to Burning Man, meditate, whatever it is. They all were helpful, but none of them were actually treating the problem. They were all addressing the symptoms, right? So what happened is there's two generations. There's the analog first generation that had their brains rewired because that's exactly what happens when you use these devices. And we can talk about the dark side of that stuff in a bit. But you're rewiring your brain and your body to keep up. It's accelerating, it's, it's, it's moving at a much more superficial but an accelerated level. So. When you have to do things the old way, your body literally doesn't know how to do it. So you've taught yourself how to operate in this new normal. So society as a whole be- lives life as that new normal and nobody realizes they have a problem. Like my, my biggest problem is how do you sell a book about digital distractions to people who don't realize that they're distracted or know that they're distracted. 
The only reason I figured it out is because I was trying to write a different book. And it had been three years since my last book. And I had, look, we've got more apps, a lot of you know, new pressures in society. We look at, you know, obviously you're plugged into the news, uh, the news ecosystem. Everything's moving so fast. We're dealing with fake news in the last three years that we didn't have to deal with before. We're dealing with, with, with psychological warfare on all of these social accounts that we didn't have to deal with before. Uh, so our life is fundamentally different, but we're still trying to live up to these standards of the past that don't necessarily correlate anymore. They're not in alignment anymore. So when I failed to write my next book, it was because I couldn't get past the proposal stage. I couldn't think at deep levels. I just wanted to move and multitask the way I'd always been. I still had to write the book. So the process became about getting not just back to where I was, but better. Optimizing, I don't have 23 minutes, but what am I gonna do in 23 seconds or five minutes? How am I gonna take advantage of the way that my body and brain has been rewired to be better? So let's talk about the rewiring, because that's really interesting. And just a quick side note, when you were talking about this, like the fake news, and I realized my phone's a battlefield, right? Yeah. When, it, when I go back on there, there's trolls, there's bots, there's armies, there's this, there's that. there's, And you have to wade through it. And, and Trump has kind of sped up uh, the news cycle as well. Like he's a, in a sense, a, I don't wanna say the right president for a goddamn thing. But I'm saying like for the moment of like in this incredibly fast paced environment, you get a product like Donald Trump, a fast paced president that creates so many controversies in a day that you can't keep up. It used to take years for a president to create that many controversies. He does it in one day. And so it's part of this phenomenon. But I wanna go back to the rewiring of the brain. So how does social media rewire your brain? Well, I'll, uh, I'll compare the two, right? So in the same way that Trump spins up everybody, it's intentional because that's how he controls the media cycle. And at the same time, it's a strategy he's long employed with, with his legal opponents, which is wearing people down. On the social side of things, whether it's Trump or whether you're keeping up with everything, you're losing the ability to not only dive deep, but you're losing empathy. You're forgetting about things in the past. It's, you, you have almost this, uh, this fatigue of, of, of all kinds of things. Even your friends are raising money for great causes. You're just like, ah, you know, what's, What's the next thing? You're moving so quickly that it's hard to kind of let yourself be in that moment and take charge of that moment. And for the most part, we don't think it's a problem because it's not. You're on to the next thing. But to answer your question more specifically, there's a there's a gentleman named Tristan Harris, and he was a, a, an early Silicon Valley legend for a lot of these social networks. And now he's sort of the whistleblower. And he talks about the design techniques like persuasive design or intermittent variable rewards that go into these apps and games that get you hooked. They literally release six different chemicals in your body by the way that they're designed. Just just physically and, and chemically, that's one way. Then there's the emotional design, right? So if you share something online and you don't get enough likes, you feel like, horrible, like less of yourself. If you're looking at your friend's posts and they're living their best life and you're not there, you feel like you're missing out, you feel less of yourself. And so it starts to affect things like self-esteem, it even leads to depression, all because these design techniques weren't, they weren't intended to do that, they just didn't think about it. What they were designed to do was grab your attention because that's the commodity that they sell. And the more of that attention that they have, the more that they could grow the network, the more they, they can monetize that network. I realize now why I'm slightly impervious to it. Because we, we get so much incoming hate and bombardment of, of comments sent to us, etc. through all these different social media. Because when somebody doesn't like what I wrote, I think, idiot. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't internalize it at all. Okay, so that's the right answer. All right, no, seriously. Um, <laughs> so uh, I get it, and, I, and I've talked to a couple other guests about this too. That if you think about it for a second, it's very logical. If you want, like, the maybe the best example is gaming. If you want people to play your game longer, you're going to design it to trigger both uh, chemically, uh, you know, your brain in every way, but also emotionally to get you to stay on that game or stay on that platform if it's social media. And if you think about it, the converse of that is if you get off of it, well, what happens when you get off of a drug, right? And and you've got withdrawal and et cetera. So has it, do we know if on a national scale has created more depression? Yeah, so there are studies, because the, the alarm bells are ringing all over the place now, there are studies that are looking at the links of depression, and yet the early studies show absolutely. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. I did a, a, a secret research project for a global beauty brand, and my job uh, as a digital anthropologist was to study the effects of Instagram and Snapchat and other social networks on the definition of a woman, how a woman would define beauty and self-beauty, and then also what effects it had, if any, on self-esteem and everything associated with that. And I will tell you just 100%, I, I quickly switched from an analyst to a therapist in every one of those sessions because people are trying to live up to these standards that no one's talking to them about because it's the new normal. Their parents don't understand what they're going through. Their parents, in their own way, are, are digitally addicted as well. And so we're not necessarily seeing the effects it's having on us in the long term until someone reaches out and has that conversation, right? So I think medical professionals, health and wellness professionals, they're all not prepared to deal with the extent of what's happening to us. So that's a great point. Another author uh, pointed this out too, and I hadn't thought of it until. Uh, that I read uh, the work of people like you, right? Is that uh, social media also does this effect where it lifts up uh, certain people, wh- whether it's based on beauty or anything else, or even expertise. And you don't realize they're only good at that one thing. It makes it seem like they're, they they have their lives together. They're amazing. <laughs> like, you know, whatever Jenner, right? <laughs> Is, but she doesn't know math. Right, I don't know that for sure, right? <laughs> but she's good at, at you know wearing the right clothes and looking a certain way, and 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 on the other hand, Bill Nye, the science guy, is great at science, but maybe he's not necessarily good at at other things. But you have all these models of what appears to be excellence, which then makes you and they're but they're one out of a billion or one out of a hundred million, whatever it might be. So then it makes you think like, oh, I must be inadequate. Because I can't measure up to the Kardashians or Bill Nye the Science Guy or LeBron James, etc. Yep. Do you think that's part of what's driving the phenomenon? It is absolutely. It's not. Even, it's not even just being good enough. It's trying to keep up with, right? Where you have, you have people who will change their looks. In this research, I find people who will change their looks as many as six times or more per day, and share each one of those because they feel like they have to keep feeding their. Audience, right? Like we're all we're all micro famous now, and we all have audiences who also have audiences. Please speak for yourself. I'm a little bit more than micro famous. Okay? I'll give you that. I'll give, I follow you on Twitter. Oh, good. Uh, Did you like what I last wrote? <laughs> okay, <Split. laughs> Okay, we got to go. But listen, guys. First of all, check out the book. It's called Life Scale: How to Live a More Creative, Productive, and Happy Life. Get the right balance. Okay, get be smart. Get the right balance, uh, and don't beat yourself up. Okay. Putting the kidding aside, seriously, it's um, 
you're getting a lot of the wrong messages and sometimes on purpose, right? Absolutely. So uh, just bring it down for a second. We're all human and, and keep it real. Brian, thank you for joining us and give us that message. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. All right. Uh, when we come back, uh, Ida Rodriguez and Burke Thomas are back. And uh, ironically, we're gonna talk about burnout in the in the post game for the members. The last half hour was just for members, tyt.com slash trial. Uh, get a free week. Okay, do it now. Don't get distracted for 23 minutes. Okay, uh, and uh, is there such a thing as burnout at work or not? I'm going to have controversial opinions. All right, we'll see you guys there.